page 1063. John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace And truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Tim was mentioning earlier on that uh, one of the things we've done over a number of years is invest quite a bit of money in the building. And I, I do lose track of time. I think three, four years ago, I can't remember, when we opened the, uh, the front extensions um, uh, and uh, that sort of foyer area downstairs. Um, it's been good, actually. Um, it's funny how having a foyer like that has, um, has somehow made the building feel a little bit more accessible. Um, people find their way in, feels a little bit inviting, um, sort of draws them into the building as a whole. Um, and, and we try and make it a kind of informative foyer. Um, got those little pop-up banner things now. Um, gives the times of the services, names of some of the children's groups, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's not exactly comprehensive information, but yeah, just little pointers to some of the stuff that people will find um, going on um, in the church here. Foyers, good for that kind of stuff. Uh, one writer talking about this opening chunk of John's Gospel, says uh, it's a little bit like a foyer. A little bit like you you step into it 
and it invites you to travel further on in. Uh, and it is also full of anticipations of the stuff you'll find if you press on through. Because tucked into these 18 verses, loads of ideas, themes that John is going to develop um, in the rest of his account of the life of Jesus. Um, that's why when I've just pulled out three headings, and under each of the headings I've, I've tucked in a verse that relates to that theme, a, a verse that comes from later in the Gospel. I could have chosen... Um, any one of dozens, um, because these themes are, are so prominent um, in what follows. Um, John begins, in a kind of obvious state, at the beginning. Um, in the beginning, he says, was the Word. And, and the language of the Word um, is quite striking. Um, our words are part of us, aren't they? Um, they're, they're literally the, the, the breath we breathe out. Or we say that our word is my bond. Um, or they should be. When we make a promise, we say that we give someone our word. Uh, the word then is a, is a kind of self-expression. Um, it's the way that I uh, reveal myself. The way that you get to know somebody. Uh, if we have a man or a woman who have um, a man of few words, then we mean they're a little bit mysterious kind of hard to get to know because they don't give much away. But the word of verse 1 isn't just any old speech. No, we're told that this word was with God and this word was God, which kind of sounds complicated, doesn't it? When we read that the word was with God, we get the sense that there's two things here. There's God and there's the word and they're separate. But then in the very next phrase, we're told that the Word was God, and the gap closes again. And you immediately begin to sense that we're in the territory of the Trinity, of a God who is one, and yet is known in three persons. And notice that that fits with the fact that the Word is personal. This Word is not an it, but a he. And in all sorts of ways, right here at the very beginning of his gospel, John is anticipating the ending. Do you, do you remember? Uh, one of the, almost a climactic point of John's gospel, perhaps, is the moment when Thomas, who's the doubter, doesn't really believe that Jesus could have come back to life again uh, and demands that he gets the chance to, to put his finger in the wounds, put his hand in the side. I won't believe till then. And Jesus appears and invites him to do exactly that. And we get that climactic moment when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. That's where we're headed. That's where John is telling us uh, we are moving to. In this prologue, this foyer, we're being told, uh, here's where we're going. Here's what you'll find if you come on in uh, and spend some time in John's Gospel. So three things I want to, uh, to highlight about this word. Um, here's the first of them. That the word creates. Now pick it up in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And again, immediately you're hearing the echoes of Genesis, aren't you? The first book in the Bible tells us how creation happened. And now here we've got John's gospel, who is going to tell us how new creation happens. 
uh, which kind of fits with all of that. You remember that Nicodemus stuff in chapter 3, if you're familiar with it, with the idea of new birth. I'm going to start again. Uh, And the first thing that John wants us to know about the word, Jesus, is that he is different. Because while you and I and everything else that is around us are created, there was a time when we weren't and then we were, well, here is something that is uncreated. Here is the one who was there at the beginning and before the beginning, who has no beginning because he is the creator. He is the one through whom all things were made. And it's as if John is saying, the world divides into two. You have a creator who's always been and who makes everything, and then you have his creation, the stuff that he brought into being. And in that division, that fundamental division between the creator and the created, where are you going to place Jesus? You're going to place Jesus over here. The creator, the one through whom all things were made. Um, These are such big themes. I found myself thinking it's really hard to illustrate them. And I've got two really banal illustrations at some points. Here's the first of them. Imagine imagine that you are, um, well, actually many of you will have been, you have to imagine. uh, You're traveling on the A14 and you're snarled up in all the traffic. Um, of all the roadworks that are going on there. Well, cast your mind forward to 2020 uh, when all the work is finished. Okay, cast your mind forward to 2022 uh, when eventually all the work is finished. And and you're swishing down the new A14 and it's wonderful. Um, And you gaze out of the window and you see a man in a yellow high-vis jacket and he's just, I don't know, he's doing a bit sweeping up because uh, you're just doing the last finishing off bits. And, and you're driving along, and you say to yourself, see that bloke there? He did all this. Um, uh, and your passenger says, you what? He did all this. He did all of this A14 construction. That man on his own did all of the building, all the bridges and everything. He did all this. And you say, no, no, that's not what I meant. No, I mean, he did all this. Every bird, every flower, Every mountain, every valley, every human being, every tree. And he made the stars also. What preposterous thing to say. But you see, that is what is being said. Not a man in a high-vis jacket stood by a lake in Bar Hill but there was a point where there was a man stood by a lake in Galilee of which you would say that he made all this that man it is a stunning claim isn't it that is being made here in John's gospel is our view of Jesus Christ big enough that that, that we get this that we have this sense of who he is, that, 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 we, that we've begun to believe, really believe, that the Jesus who lived and ate and slept in first century Palestine is the one through whom everything was made, the distant galaxies. 
this Jesus was the creator become man, enfleshed, incarnate. And not in the sense that God had somehow put on human nature like an overcoat that he just sort of wrapped himself in and pretended to be a man. Um, and nor that God had somehow come alongside man, um, uh, a bit like two actors might put themselves alongside one another and pretend to be a pantomime horse. No, no, no. That this Jesus had become God, was God become flesh, fully God and fully man, simultaneously. That, that is the scandal of the incarnation. It is scandalous. That in a moment in history, the God who had made all things stepped into his very own creation. If you find that hard to believe, then probably that's because it is. But John wrote this gospel, wrote this account of Jesus' life, in order that that which is hard to believe might become believable. As you see what he does, as you hear what he says, as you, you sense the way that he lives, you begin to believe with Thomas that I am meeting my Lord and my God. So first, the word creates. Uh, and then secondly, the word illuminates. And we get that idea in verse 4. And five, in him, John writes, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, John wants us to know that in Jesus is both light and life. A and that light and life come through him to us. Again, you, you can hear more echoes of Genesis, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. Because light brings life to us. Shove a bucket over a bit of grass and it won't take long before the grass is dead. It needs light to live. And if that's true in a physical sense, well, we're also being told here that it's true in a spiritual sense as well. But this is not the arrival of an idea. It's the arrival of a person in a moment, at a moment in history. And I think that's why John the Baptist gets mentioned here, um, because that almost sort of locates things. John's been working with these huge themes, these, these great ideas about light and life and creation, and now suddenly he grounds it in a moment in history by saying that John came, there was, verse 6, a man sent from God whose name was John, locates it in history. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. It's a great little line, isn't it? He himself was not the light. You get a flavor there of how important John the Baptist is. See, if I were to say, you, say to you, Steve Midgley was not the light, you'd think, well, no, no, actually... It had never occurred to me to imagine that he was, funnily enough. And you'd be right. But, but he has to say that about John the Baptist, you see. He needs to say about John the Baptist, John the Baptist wasn't the light, because some people were so taken up by the importance of, the, uh, of this figure and all that he was doing and saying that they began to think maybe John the Baptist was the light. 
And John has to say, no, he wasn't. But the true light that brings light to everyone was coming into the world. And and we arrive at another theme that's going to be so dominant um, in this gospel account of of light and darkness. Just, Just think how often it appears. Jesus is going to say to us, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not be in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or Jesus is going to say to us to believe in the light so that we might become children of light. And again and again through this gospel account, light is going to be contrasted with darkness. And darkness represents um, sort of not just spiritual ignorance, though it does do that, but, but, but also spiritual opposition. And people, we're told, love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And spiritually dull things happen at night. Nicodemus, unable to make sense of Jesus. When does Nicodemus come to Jesus? He comes at night. Or Judas, when Judas makes the decision to go and betray Jesus. Uh, John will tell us that Judas went out. And it was night. Even on the third day, uh, when the women go to the tomb, still unaware of what's going to happen, they're taking spices to embalm Jesus' body. John again tells us that they went while it was still dark, while it was still night. Darkness is what people are in until Jesus illuminates them. Uh, And that gives us a, a pointer to the way that the battle between light and dark is not straightforward. Uh, glance back to verse 5 again. Um, see that phrase, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, you'll see from a footnote there that there's two ways of understanding that verse. Um, the idea that the, the darkness has not overcome it suggests some sort of a battle. But the word could equally mean that the, the darkness has not um, understood the light. Maybe a good translation might have been um, that um, the darkness has not mastered it. Because mastered, we kind of, kind of captures both those ideas, isn't it? Sometimes we will say, you know, I don't know, we, we're trying to learn to juggle. Um, and we say, oh, I think I've mastered it. Um, you know, I, I've understood it. I know how to do it now. But sometimes we might say, oh, I've got a real battle with my temper and I just can't master it. Um, meaning that we're in conflict with it and we can't overcome it. Which does John mean? Probably both. It's, it's another of the things that John does. Look out for it. He uses a word that has two meanings, and he intends both of them. Because spiritually, things are often complicated. John wants us to understand here, therefore, that there are spiritual forces at work. Illumination is not inevitable. That's what he's saying, that there is some sort of a conflict, some sort of a battle going on. You, you go home, um, and it's nighttime, and you get a lamp, and you take it into a dark room, and you put it there. The room is illuminated. It just happens. But that's not the case here. There isn't an inevitability about this. Jesus, yes, he's the light, but him arriving in the world doesn't guarantee that people are illuminated. The light, in that sense come to our final heading, the light in that sense divides. And the spiritual battle 
that is involved here between light and darkness is a battle that's going to find its climax at the cross. Verse 10, the light divides. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's astonishing thing, this, when you think what John has already told us about Jesus. It beggars belief that here is the creator, here is the one who made everything, stepping into his own creation, and his his creation misses him, doesn't understand him, passes him by. And the first half of the gospel is full of these kind of missing Jesus moments. You could think of the blind man in John 9, where Jesus miraculously gives this man who's been blind from birth, gives him sight. It's a fantastic moment. The man can see. Here is somebody coming to see and understand. But, but then the, the Pharisees and the leaders of the people, oh, they, just, they just condemn Jesus for having healed on the Sabbath. Unable to see who it is that has done this miracle. And at the end of that chapter, uh, Jesus wraps things up by saying that it is for judgment that I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. That there are some people who know that they can't see, know that they need help, and will come to Jesus for that help, and he will help them, and he will give them sight and vision and understanding. But there are some people who think they they know, and they are not the people who will come to Jesus for help. And it's as if at this point, John would be asking us the question, which are we? Think we've got it all sorted? I've got this Jesus bit done? You and I have much, much more to discover. You've been a Christian for 30 years. You've got much, much more to discover of who this Jesus really is. That we might adore him as we should. So a division takes place between those who see and those who do not see. Between those who have light and those who remain in darkness. And there is a tragedy about it. Do you catch that? The awfulness of encountering your own creator and failing to recognize him. I told you I had banal illustrations. Here's my second. Um, James Dyson, um, the, you know, the, the, the vacuum man, um, he, um, he is worth apparently 3.5 billion pounds. He's done quite well, hasn't he, actually? James Dyson, that's not bad. Um, and apparently, in 2002... Hoover paid him over three million pounds um, in damages to settle a claim for infringement of his patent, of his cyclo thingy, what's it, stuff, job. Because they sort of pinched the idea um, and tried to pretend it was theirs, and actually everyone, it, was, it was his. But the irony of the whole thing is that a decade earlier, Back in the early 1990s, poor old James Dyson was trying to find anyone who would run with his idea. And he went to Hoover. And he said, look, I've got this great idea for a brand new way of doing your hoovering. And they said, no, no, not really, thank you. Showed him the door. 
sent him out. 3.5 billion he's worth now. Now, do you think that somewhere within the Hoover organization, there is a very embarrassed executive who took that decision? No, thanks, Mr. Dyson. We think you're a bit of a wally and we don't think it'll ever catch on. Now, a bit embarrassing, miss out on that sort of commercial opportunity. Forgive the analogy, but how awful to encounter your creator and miss that. But that's what we're being told happened here. That he came to his own and his own did not receive him. There's a deep, deep tragedy in these verses. But it's not all darkness. Because, verse 12, to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And, and in this verse, you've just got a, in a nutshell, you've got the gospel, haven't you? Because to receive Christ, to acknowledge him as Lord and God, is to be saved. This is what John has to say, uh, uh, Jesus has to say in chapter 17. Now, this is eternal life, Jesus tells us, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And, and just notice what happens in this reception of the light. You don't get sort of a, you know, a pass into the distant outer quarters um, of, uh, of God's kingdom. No, no, when you receive Christ, you enter into the family. You become a child. You belong to the very family of God himself. And before those of us who would call ourselves Christian believers begin to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we're not like those silly people who, who didn't recognize him. I recognized him, worked out who he was, and I received him, and I became a child of God. I didn't I do well. Lest we go down that route, verse 13, remember that those who are children are born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Straight away, John has to tell us, it's God that does it. And, and those of us who've been Christians for any length of time, we know that. You know, at the time, if there was a po point where we were making our decision, it looked as though we were taking the decision. We were working God out. And then a few years down the line, we look back and we realize it was God all along. He was making it clear to us. He was drawing us in. He brought us to faith. We were in darkness, unable to master him but he made himself known to us anyway. All of which leads to John's magnificent conclusion. There in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a verse. Do a sermon on that on its own, couldn't we? Should we go back to the beginning and have another go? enough to say that right through the Old Testament the great puzzle was how could you see God? How could you ever really see him? And there are lots of links in the language here to uh, Moses going up the mountain in Exodus 32-33. Uh, Do you remember that moment? Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, the Ten Words. And Moses asks to see God's glory. 
But God won't allow that. He says, you can see my back. For no one, Moses is told, can see the face of God and live. But now, now, John moves us into uncharted territory. Because even if the law, those ten words, even if they were given through Moses, now grace and truth, verse 17, have come through Jesus Christ. No one was able to see God, but now, verse 18, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. That's what's on offer in this gospel. In a sense, that's what we are about this year as we preach all the way through John's gospel. To encounter the one who made us. To meet with our God. To allow Jesus, the light of the world, to illuminate us. Are you excited by a journey like that? I'm beginning to feel just a little bit of anticipation about how good it will be to travel this road. It may be that you've been traveling the path of the Christian life for many, many years. But don't imagine that there isn't more for you to find out about this Jesus. We're never done discovering the riches of our Creator. Plenty more for us to uncover this year. The very end of John's account, in that encounter with Thomas, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, because you've gazed on my wounded body, because you've put your hand in my wounds, because you've seen me, you have believed. But blessed, says Jesus, are those who have not seen, who just have John's account to work with. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. That's our excitement. That's our anticipation for this year ahead. To see Jesus revealed to us in this account of his life and believe in him. Have life in his name. Life in all its fullness. Let me lead us in a prayer together before we sing again. Uh, what astonishing grace you have uh, poured, us, poured out to us, Lord God, uh, that we who dwell in darkness, uh, spiritually dull, uh, that to us you have brought light, uh, to us uh, in our world you revealed yourself, uh, Jesus, the light of the world. And in this Jesus, uh, all your fullness was pleased to dwell so that we might see you as you are, encounter you face to face. 
Uh, Lord God, we, um, uh, we do ask that you would indeed excite us uh, with the journey that lies ahead. Uh, perhaps for some of us, uh, this will be uh, a journey of encountering you for the very first time, uh, that we don't yet number ourselves amongst those uh, who believe. Uh, but for others of us, uh, that it will be uh, a journey into a deeper, richer love of Christ as we read of his words, his actions, and finally, of his uh, mighty sacrifice uh, as that battle between light and darkness reaches its climax on the cross. Uh, Thank you, Lord God, uh, for making yourself known to us. Uh, May we see you in all your glory and praise you as we should. Amen.